0: Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church/northadelaide. We're going to have the Bible readings uh, for the sermon this morning. Uh, we'll have uh, one from Psalms and uh, our next from Hebrews. Uh, so we'll begin with Psalm 8. That can be found on page 848 um, in the Bibles that are in the pews. For the director of music, according to Gittith, a psalm of David. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, all the animals of the wild, the birds in the sea, in the sky, sorry, and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And now we go to Hebrews, starting in chapter 2, from verse 5 uh, to uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, and uh, what has just preceded this, uh, which Jaco preached on last week, was that uh, Jesus is supreme, particularly over the angels. And uh, therefore, the writer of Hebrews is warning us to um, hold firm to the teaching uh, of Jesus' salvation. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind, that you are mindful of them, a son of man, that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels, you crowned them with glory and honour, and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest.
1: Thank you very much, Ellen. Good morning. Uh, My name's Simon. Uh, people call me Jacko. I serve as one of the elders here at City Light Church, North Adelaide. It's good to see you this morning and let me add my welcome to that of Ellen and to Jesse, and especially a warm welcome to the mums in the room. Um, just so that it's made clear, uh, we've got a gift um, for every woman who's come here today, where, which you'll get as you head out today. So if you don't get one, just come and see me, we'll make sure you get one. But somehow we've got a little gift to just... Um, Thank you and recognize your contribution to our lives this morning. Um, as Before I pray and we get into it, um, we've got a bunch of books up the back on the table uh, which are all free and we want you to take them and enjoy them and if you read them and find them helpful to pass them on to other people, uh, bring them back even and other people can use them as well. Um, but uh, there's a bunch of the books up there. We're in the book of Hebrews, a real clarion call for us to keep trusting Jesus and keep trusting him come what may Um, so there's a bunch of books that will help you do that but one in particular is this book Hanging In There by John Dixon, Uh, he's an Australian uh, Christian man, author, evangelist, historian, Um, he first, this was first published in 1991 um, and has been sort of republished and rebranded and things like that but it's essentially the same, Um, it's written probably for younger persons, Um, that probably means I'm out of that category Um, but uh, but it's not just for younger persons as well. It's written sort of to that sort of type of person, that age group, but there's great benefit in here Um, for those of us who maybe are new to the Christian faith. What does it look like to live for Jesus? It's also a great book for those who are maybe just in need of some encouragement, um, a spurring on to keep following Christ um, in the midst of heaps of challenges that it is to be a Christian. So can I just encourage you? There's that book up there amongst others. Please check them out. Enjoy them. I hope they're of benefit to you. Let's pray. And I hope you do have Hebrews chapter 2 open before you. That would be a good thing to do. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Loving Father, this morning we pray that you would speak to us through your word in the power of the Spirit. So that we would be strengthened encouraged and spurred on that we would fix our eyes and our thoughts on the lord jesus and that we might live together for his glory and we pray in jesus name amen do you remember or know who this person is on the screen coming up hey there she is who knows who that is can't hear. Theresa May. Theresa May. Yeah, thanks, Creed. That's Theresa May. Uh, Theresa May served as the Prime Minister of uh, Britain from 2016 to 2019. As Prime Minister of the UK, of Britain, it was a really hard gig. Really, really hard for her. Um, at one stage, uh, she was trying to um, push through, I guess, a particular deal related with Brexit that particularly big and complicated issue. She was trying to push through um, some policy and yet as she pushed through this particular Brexit deal, she had zero confidence. Uh, So she stood up in the House of Commons to present some thoughts on this, this big deal and she had zero support, no one stood with her. She cut a very isolated figure. She then traveled to Brussels in Belgium to again present a policy to the European Union And again, she had zero support, and again, she cut a very isolated figure. And in the midst of all this, across all forms of the media, at the time, people were calling for her resignation. Even neutral observers were saying, why does she keep going? Why doesn't she just give up? And at the time, I'm sure she asked the question herself, why don't I just give up? We don't know for sure, actually, if Teresa may ask that question of herself, why shouldn't I just give up? But certainly the Christians to whom this letter, this sermon was preached, the Hebrews, back in the first century, they were asking that same question. Why don't we just give up? Here are some Christians from a Jewish background, at least we think, who'd begun really well as they'd followed the long-promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. But now they're wavering and we can understand why, because the cost of following Jesus in this moment was huge. Here they are, raised in Judaism, and then they start worshipping someone who literally just a few years ago had walked and lived on earth as a man, and had then died on earth as a man. And now they worship him as God. Immediately, this is more than a social issue, moving away from family and friends who you've been with for years in the synagogue and maybe down at the temple. Now you've moved away from family, you've moved away from this massive religion, and now you're going to a little poxy church gathering down a side street called Archer Street. Probably not, but you know, little poxy church handful of people, but they'd persevered, right? They'd kept going, but what began as social and religious pressure also involved political pressure. It seems clear that there's some kind of state-wide, state-invoked persecution going on. Some of their friends had been thrown into prison. Others had lost lots of property. Now, as they head to that little church down the side street, it must have been really tempting to just walk on by and say, nah, let's go to Pippo for Eggs Benedict instead. It would have been much easier. You know, we might read Hebrews, right? You might hear that and think, that sounds a little bit alien to me. I'm I'm Very few of us here, I'm sure, are from a Jewish background. We're not thinking of going back to the temple or heading back to the synagogue, but it does get very close to home when we recognise that the Christian life is still hard. There is social stigma out there for standing for Jesus. Sometimes family pressures. And in other parts of the world, political pressure and maybe you're here this morning and maybe you're here this morning and you're just thinking why don't I just give up well let me tell you this part of the Bible is here to provide us wherever we're at with refreshing energizing reassuring and theologically nourishing comfort and encouragement. It's really strong stuff. It's meaty stuff. I don't know if you felt that as Ellen read out Hebrews chapter 2. It is rich and meaty and strong. And so I've this morning come up helpfully with five long sentences to try and capture What is going on? And here is the first of the five. And it's, by the way, it's the shortest, so hang in there. Hopefully, you've got chapter two open in front of you from verse five. Here's the first one in verses five to eight. The pastor says this Don't panic, the Son is in control. After the really strong words of chapter two, verses one to four, warning us, as Ellen alluded to, um, to take the message of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, really seriously. We pick up the argument, again, that sort of stopped at the end of chapter 1. There's more to say, it seems, about the supremacy and the beauty and the majesty of the sun. The pastor, this time, flicks back to Psalm chapter 8 in his Old Testament to make the deeply calming point that even though we don't actually see Jesus running the universe, it doesn't mean that he's not in control, Yeah. Back in chapter 1 verse 13, Psalm 110 verse 1 was quoted where the father said to the son, sit at my right hand so that I might make your enemies a footstool. Now the, the pastor, the writer of Hebrews, the preacher wants to make sure that we get the fact that this is exactly what's happened. The Son has taken on human flesh in the incarnation. He suffered, He's died for us, providing purification. In other words, He's cleaned us up, He's fixed us up, and now we sat down at the right hand of the Father. And what's going on right now? Well, there may be a slight time lag between the beginning of the reign of the Son and everything and everyone bowing down to Him, but make no mistake, the Son is in control, there's no need to panic. Persecution mounting in the Roman world of the first century or not. I do no religious discrimination bills passing in Canberra or not. The incarnation's happened, the atonement's happened, Jesus' resurrection has happened, his ascension, exaltation, and coronation has happened. His session, remember that from last week, has begun. And now we can just wait calmly because even though it may not be visible to everyone, this is the reality. And soon enough it'll become crystal clear. How do we know this? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. Have a look. It is not to the angels that Jesus, He has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. Yeah? The Father has already acted to exalt the Son, which brings us to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, right, is David reflecting on the incredible reality that God has created and chosen human beings like us to rule the world in his place under him. But the writer of the Hebrews sees a pattern deeply embedded in this psalm emerging, right? The pattern is this, the pattern of embracing and experiencing creaturely weakness, then tasting glory, and then finally enjoying ultimate victory. See that pattern? Experiencing, enduring creaturely weakness, then tasting glory, and then experiencing ultimate victory. Now, by the way, the fact that the the writer to the Hebrews or this preacher goes, somebody somewhere wrote this, isn't actually him bluffing to cover up the fact that he can't remember which psalm it is where he's remembering. I've, I've, I was devastated to find that out this week because in conversations with people, I'm going, oh, you know, the Bible says somewhere, you know, and I'm going, because the Hebrew, the writer, the Hebrews said it's okay. Well, it's not, no, I'm just saying it's okay, but he's not doing that. It's actually a fairly common first century literary device to put the, the focus squarely not on David, the human author of the text, but on the divine author of this. Because under God, David here probably speaks a better word than he even knows. As he writes of God's dealings with us humans in a way that anticipates the work of the second Adam, the pastor spots this. He sees that what is true of humanity in general is ultimately and dramatically true in the life and person of the son. How does the father express his love for the son by sending him to become a little lower than the angels in the incarnation, by exalting him to the right hand, crowning him with glory and honor, and at some point in the future, subjecting all things under his feet. The pastor's point is actually quite profound. What's the point? God has ordered creation around this pattern, and you could actually say all of creation has been set up to facilitate the mission of Christ the Son the plan is now two thirds way through by the way so don't panic don't panic the Son is in control look at the end of verse 8 Hebrews chapter 2 in putting everything under them God left nothing that is not subject to them yet at present we do not see everything subject to them but that is the reality There is no need to fret. There is no need to panic. It's not like the father is scurrying around, frantically trying to deal with some rogue elements who continue to rebel against Jesus. It's certainly not that the outcome is in any doubt. The father has already spoken. It will happen. So don't panic. The son is in control. And you know what, brothers and sisters? I suspect over the next months and years, it's gonna be increasingly important for us to take hold of this reality. Because it may not and may increasingly feel like God is not in control. As perhaps we as followers of Jesus get pushed even further to the margins. And the dissonance between what Christians hold to be true becomes ever increasingly different to what the majority of the world holds to be true and real and right. There'll be difficult days to come, but don't panic, for the sun is in control. That's the, fa- that's the pastor's first instruction. The second, here it comes, take heart. Jesus became human, and he tasted suffering and death for us. Now, we may not see heaven and earth bowing before Jesus just yet, but we have seen and continue to feast our eyes on something astonishing through the gospel. The writer says, Hebrews chapter two, verse nine, we may not see the world being sucked up underneath the feet of Jesus right now, but verse nine, we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone, for Puritan John Owen, born and wrote a long time ago, this is the sum of the gospel and the doctrine of it. Here in verse nine, you'll be fascinated to know there are two, and I know, because you love grammar, right? You are grammar nerds, you know, so here he is. Um, You'll be fascinated to know there are two key verbal forms which help us unlock the pastor's point. They're perfect participles, right? So if you're going to a Mother's Day lunch today and you just wanna blow your mum's socks off, just go, I learn about perfect participles today. She's gonna to go, so proud of you. So proud of you. You're everything, this is everything I wanted. Two perfect participles, which describe two this is what a perfect participle is, by the way. It's something that describes well, what we have here is describes two things that have happened in the past but have ongoing effect, right? Firstly, we're told that the son was made a little lower than the angels, first participle. Second, he was crowned with glory and honor. In other words, the eternal son of God became and remains human right now. And right now, as one who, he hasn't shed his humanity, sitting as a human at the right hand of God. And just in case we're missing the point, the pastor adds, I'm talking about jesus jesus is in human form sitting at the right hand of god he's the eternal son running the universe we can take heart because the one who has been exalted got there by becoming one of us and suffering for us do you really think he's going to abandon us now It's a word to the Hebrews back in the first century who were wondering about, shall I just give it up, throw it in? Wondering a word for us today, an encouragement. Do you think he's going to abandon us now? The language here, as always, is very carefully chosen by the pastor. Jesus went through suffering of death so that by grace of God, he might taste death for everyone pastor Rudd has a knack of bringing out emphases that sometimes we overlook, and here is there's no exception here. Jesus' road to death was a long one. The Gospels make it really clear that Jesus knew what was coming for him a long way out, and he still went through it for us. Gareth Cockrell expresses this point for us. The son's sufficient sacrifice wasn't a sanitary death, but a perfect continual obedience in the face of severe opposition and suffering that culminated in his death. And when he tasted death, the point isn't that he had a sip and spat it out. He drained the cup to the very bottom. I don't know, and for that matter, I don't really want to know if you've ever had a colonoscopy. You probably would say, it's Mother's Day, Jacko. Don't talk about these things. I don't want to know. If you haven't had a colonoscopy, I can assure you, trust me, it's not one of the things you want to put on your bucket list. Um, I was asleep for the actual procedure, but let me tell you, when I had a colonoscopy several years ago, the 48 hours beforehand were not a barrel of laughs. Um, Fasting. Fasting for 48 hours. Apart from having to drink gallons of this vile, white, globby solution that completely empties your system, oh, and then to follow that, gallons of a variety of tasty, clear-like fluids, like water and chicken broth, with the threat hanging over you, right, that if you didn't drink all the liquids, all of it, you'd have to do it all over again. I feel like, I feel like I've been fasting for weeks. I like I couldn't possibly take another drop into my body. I did it only because I was having some weird symptoms and had a little bit of a history of bowel cancer in my family. Otherwise, I have, it would have been stupid not to do it, but otherwise I would not have gone through with that. But the eternal Son of God became human, faces opposition and pain, and endures innocent suffering and the weight of sin and the wrath of his Father, and he does it for all of us. He downs the cup and he drains it to the absolute dregs, to the very bottom, every single drop. And after doing all that, he is now sitting at the right hand of God as the one who is both God and human. The pastor says, brothers and sisters, take heart. He did this for us. This is our pastor's equivalent of Romans chapter 5 verse 6 where Paul says, Romans chapter 5 verse 6, you see, just at the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the Apostle Paul will go on to talk about justification by faith and reconciliation But the pastor here wants to point out to us, as the one who becomes one of us, he pushes through suffering to die for us and says, he did that for you and for me. Take heart. Take heart. I do wonder, I do wonder how many of our issues, how many of our anxieties and our insecurities would just kind of melt away if we simply spent a little bit more time gazing on the Son of God, namely Jesus, who became one of us, and sent became one of us and went through suffering of death for us. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom brings us to the third statement this is in verses 10 to 13 God set it all up like this because of what he is like and what we needed the more time I'm spending with the pastor in the book of Hebrews the more I'm blown away by the pastor's deep theological sensitivity and by his bold desire to encourage people like you and me He's actually aware that some of us might at this point start to wonder, why on earth did it have to be all like this? Why did the eternal son have to suffer and die in our place? To which the pastor says, verse 10, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer or the founder of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. The writer says Jesus' incarnation and exaltation through the cross and resurrection make glorious, beautiful sense. Why? Well, his basic point is, if the father wanted to bring many sons and daughters to glory, someone had to go and get them, right? Who could do that? Well, the obvious person to do the job was the father's own son. Jesus is the one who comes Dies and then takes us by the hand and walks us to heaven. He leads the way. He clears the path, making sure that we get there. I'm married to Adele. We've been married for a little bit over 20 years. And uh, we honeymooned um, back a long time ago, back in the day. We went to Tasmania for our honeymoon. And one of the goals of our honeymoon was to climb cradle mountain Um, anyone climb cradle mountain before yeah a few people survived it good on you you know we wanted to get up to the top of cradle mountain and so we you know drove up to the car park and we walked around dove lake lovely gentle walk and we got to kitchen hut you know seeing the the top of the mountain we're gonna get there And we climbed to the top, you know, scaling the rocks, and then we came down, and one thing Adele learned about me on our honeymoon that she'd never known before is I don't like to go back the same way we came. And so she's like, no, can we just go back the same way? It's getting late. I'm like, nah, nah, it's boring. Let's go back the other, let's go this way. There was like a little trail that went off in the distance and then disappeared. I'm like, this will take us somewhere. And I'm like walking off like this, and Adele's like, nah, come on, let's go. So she'd Stupidly trusted me, and so we walked down, and we then we sl- we got the path disappeared, and then we got to this rock sort of face that slid down the edge, and so we're sliding on our butts down this thing, heading towards Dove Lake, and then we got to the bottom of that bit, and there was just bush and shrubs everywhere, no path, right? And Dell's like, "Who have I married?" You know. And there I am, you know, the trailblazer. You know, like let's cut our new path. So I'm hacking through these scrubs, and then we we hit the trail around Dove Lake, and we got home at like midnight or something silly like that. Um, I share that because it's it's Jesus, right, who blazes a trail for us, and He brings us with Him to share His glorious eternal life with the Father and the Spirit. He's our trailblazer. He cuts the path for us. It's worth making sure, by the way, that we've got uh, the fact that the language of being, what the language of being made perfect or complete is here. The word is teleosai. It's primarily vocational rather than moral here in its context. It's got strong priestly overtones. It's used in Exodus, Leviticus, numbers of properly consecrated priests in service at the temple. The point is that here it makes sense for the son to be made incarnate, to suffer and die in our place because that equips him perfectly to do the job, the high priestly job to which we'll return in a minute, to bring, but here's the job. His his job is to bring people like us home to God which explains and unlocks that little tricky statement in verse 11, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. It's a tricky little phrase, but I think the point is really kind of straightforward. The father is the father of Jesus, the son, obviously, The Son is the one whose job it is to make us holy. The Father is His dad, but the the great news is, and this is what our pastor wants us to know, is that the Father, Jesus' Father, is also our Father. We're His sons and daughters. The issue, right? How can the Father make people like us holy? How can He bring people like us to know and enjoy Him forever? Well, the only person who can pull that off is the son, the son of the father. So the son goes through vocational training, which is suffering, in order to set him up to do that trailblazing role, going through death himself and bringing us with him to enjoy life with him and the father and the spirit forever. It's appropriate that God does that because he is loving and holy. It's appropriate because we need to be made loving and holy because we are foible, filled, flawed, sinful, and needy people. God pulls it off by sending his son to take on human flesh. Become our great high priest and walk us through. So the pastor wants to reassure us encourage us weary christians limping plodding sons and daughters that will make it through to the end and we can be sure of that because jesus the properly qualified high priest and because god has always been in the business of creating a people for himself building a family Jesus gets this, and that's why Psalm 22 is quoted from the second half of verse 11. So Jesus, verse 11, is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. Jesus became one of us because he had to in order to be our pioneer, our trailblazer, leading us back to God. We're his brothers and sisters, and guess what? He's coming for us. And in doing that, Jesus had to trust his God and Father totally, and he did. And that's why in the night, the night before he died in the garden, before he died his bloody death for our sins, he said, not my will, but your will. And I think that's in the pastor's mind when he quotes 2 Samuel 22 and Isaiah chapter 8 in verse 13. And again, verse 13, I will put my trust in him. Jesus will do whatever it takes to make sure that we, his brothers and sisters, make it home to God. And at that point, Isaiah pops up again. Isaiah 8, and again he says, here I am, and the children God has given me. Those words, here I am, and the children God has given me, they were words that were first spoken by the prophet Isaiah himself about his own kids. His kids have basically unpronounceable names, so I'm not even gonna try to pronounce their names. But his words are a statement that they won't fear. They'll wait for God to deliver them as a family and they're going to cling to his promise. And what Isaiah says on behalf of his own children, Jesus takes upon himself all those who are children of the Father. Don't worry. Jesus will bring us home. In fact, he's already done what it takes in his incarnation, suffering, death, resurrection, and exaltation. Don't get hung on this, says the pastor. The way in which God does things is totally appropriate. It makes sense because this is what we need. We need a mediator. We need a go-between, one who will... Bring us through and God has provided one. We needed an elder brother. We needed a rescuer, a priest, a pioneer, a trailblazer. God has given us that and so much more. And don't miss the fact, fourthly, Jesus has dealt with death for us. We are at verse 14 through 16. Why did the eternal son take on flesh and blood? Purely and simply because of us. Verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. At a fixed point and definite point in time, the Son took on our fractured, flawed, foible-ridden, broken humanity to fix it and set it free. John Owen, in his 7 or 8 or 9 or 4,000 volume commentary on Hebrews, says this. The Son of God, this is wonderful, that the Son of God should take part in human nature with his children is the greatest and most admirable effect of divine wisdom, love and grace. This is the mystery atheists scoff at. Deluded Christians deny it, but the angels adore it. The church confesses it and believers find comfort. Just for a, a second, imagine what the reality was for the eternal Son of God to become human like us. Imagine. Imagine experiencing limitation for the first time. Falling asleep. Waking up and still feeling tired. Experiencing the delights of a sore throat, a runny nose, a headache, a migraine. Coping with the irritation of blisters. Not being able to find the words for exactly what you want to say. Having to cut your fingernails, having to cut your toenails being misunderstood or maligned on little things, breaking things through clumsiness, feeling emotional distance or coldness between people, people being condescending, dismissive, rude, or just indifferent to you. And this was all new for the eternal Son of God and visceral. But Jesus took on flesh that he might see this Taste this, feel it, close up. And he did it for us. He did it actually for a very specific pair of reasons. First, that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And secondly, verse 15, free or deliver those who for all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death did it to take away the power of death, take away the power of death from the one who held it in his hand since our first parents' sin, and he did it so that we didn't have to live under the evil one's terrible tyranny of the fear of death. The idea of Jesus as our great liberator, the one who's defeated the devil and set us free, isn't really in theological vogue right now, but it's right here in the text, staring at us in the face. We have a vicious and indomitable enemy whose aim is to keep us cringing and cowering for our entire lives until he snatches those lives away at the moment of his choosing. But the pastor says, no more. No more. Now Christ the Son holds the keys of death. Our lives are in his hands. There is no need to be afraid. There is no need to be afraid. People like us live under a lifelong slavery to the fear of death. You guys are switched on. You're smart. You've probably already worked this out. There is no avoiding death. There's no vaccination for it. Rising life expectancy might delay it, but we're all signed up for it when we were conceived and there's no getting out of the contract. A few times in the last year or so we've got a mortgage as the interest rates keep going up and up and up. I've sort of thought in the back of my mind, oh, I'd love to get out of this contract. You know, just sell the house and go and live in a tent, I don't know. (laughs) Live here. But when it comes to death, right? we've all signed up and there's no getting out of the contract. The enduring, looming, confronting an incredibly unnerving fact of our lives is this one out of one people die and it's scary there's nothing reassuring or comforting about our mortality and there's no real comfort to be found in denial either right that oblivion out there it's no comfort But we can do so much better than that, can't we? Because Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, has ripped the keys of death from the evil one and now boldly assures us that we've got nothing to be scared of. Death has simply become the gateway to life, hallelujah. Now this is a truth that's been growing on me, by the way, and I suspect it will continue to grow on me in the years to come. In my late teens, 20s and 30s, like, man, I thought I was invincible, like death. Distant prospect, never gonna touch me. I'll just worry about that later. I'll put it into the worry about that later basket, right? But occasionally, as I've entered my 40s, I've had a few dark thoughts kind of entering my head. And so this truth is starting to bring deeper and deeper comfort and consolation to me. But whatever your age, right? Let's not be suckered into thinking we're immortal. And file this truth away for a day when we have to reluctantly pull it out of the drawer. Let's let the truth that death has no power over us anymore, that we are freed from slavery to death, free us up to love Christ now and serve him with all that we have. Because this victory over death has been a long time in the making and it's a key part of what God has been doing in the world from the get-go look at what the pastor says chapter 2 verse 16 for surely it is not the angels he helps but Abraham's descendants the father and the son have not gone to extraordinary lengths to help the angels sleep at night they've done it for us the offspring of Abraham the word help here should probably be translated takes hold, of, takes hold of, as we've seen, the help we're offered is the pioneer, the trailblazer, taking us by the hand, leading us into a solid and certain future with the living God. It's probably here in allusion to Isaiah 41. Hear these words. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you, descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I've chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And the care and concern of God's people of old Israel has been expanded to include everyone and anyone from everywhere who trusts in Jesus. As Jesus takes us by the hand, leads us through death to a beautiful and glorious forever life in the new creation. The Son of God became human so that humans like us can become sons and daughters of God. Which brings us to the last thing, point five. Hebrews, people listening to this back in the first century, Christian brothers and sisters in the pokey poxy church on Archer Street in North Adelaide, be strong for our faithful and merciful high priest is on the job. We're at verses 17 to 18. Verse 17 confirms that the pastor's overriding concern here is to encourage us to press on, to keep going, to not give up. All that Jesus has done for it was for our sake. So verse 17, for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, and that he might make atonement or propitiation for the sins of the people. There is a lot packed into this particular verse much of it will be sort of unpacked as we keep working our way through the book of Hebrews this epic sermon but notice three quick things first the Son has become like us in every way that phrase is actually right up the front in the original in the Greek every single bit of being human the Sun gets it the Sun gets what it means to be human in every way In a couple of weeks' time, we're going to see that the pastor totally thinks that Jesus is sinless, not an ounce, drop, little dot or tittle of sin in him. But his concern here is to reassure us that the Son gets us. He came and actually tried out being human He felt what it's like to be us and incredibly he'll never forget it because he's still the divine son sitting at the father's right hand flawless human nature he still has. The pastor simply says the son gets what it's like to be you, Heidi. What it means to be you, Ellen. The son knows what it's like to be you, Richard. Tran. Marie. Marie. He knows, he knows what it's like to be you and then he just moves on, moves on to the second thing. He says, this is so important because this is what it took to face God's wrath for us, dealing with guilt and the penalty of our sin. The key idea of atonement at one man is that there was a distance between us and God. God is holy and sinless and we were flawed and foible, ridden and sinful. And because of our sin, God had wrath against us. And in order to bring us to God, the eternal Son of God had to become one of us to take our place. And then we get to what I think is the best bit of all. He had to become, thirdly, a merciful and faithful high priest. It's the only place actually in the whole of the Bible from Genesis 2 to Revelation where a priest of any kind is described like this. We're going to do a lot of priest thinking over the next little while, by the way, so just you know, don't freak out. No other place in the Bible is a priest described in this particular way. I don't want to be too down on priests today, maybe tomorrow, but not today. But I just want to say, when it came to priests, their character didn't really matter all that much. Of course, you know, if they started ripping off people in the temple, the tabernacle, people might start going, come on, man. But really, it didn't really matter. At the end of the day, all you wanted out of a priest was someone who could be ritually clean and who knew what they were doing with your dove or your cow or your calf or your whatever you brought, right? No one went to the temple and sort of said, you know, holding your perfect lamb, oh, I just really like a merciful priest today, really like a priest who's godly to do my sacrifice. Never! To talk of a merciful priest, right, would make as much sense sense as saying, I just would really love a merciful plumber to fix my broken toilet. It's good, obviously it's good, right, if your plumber is honest, it's good if your plumber obviously is competent, but beyond that, it's kind of irrelevant, yeah? You know, imagine the plumber kind of knocks on your door. G'day, I'm, I'm Jim, your plumber. Oh, are you merciful? I mean, like I mean, Jim would probably go, "What?" I just want to see. Oh, g'day, Jim! Glad you're here. Come and fix my toilet. And that's basically how it was with priests, even the high priest. But when the Son becomes one of us, when He is made perfect, fully equipped for His role as high priest, we get all kinds of added value. The high priest is merciful. He's unusually, Jesus is unusually emotionally engaged. You know, for the priest, right? For this priest, it's not just a matter of, you know, kind of waving and pouring and slicing and dicing at the right time. This high priest cares deeply for the poor, weary, struggling, sinful, deeply broken people he's dealing with. He's not just going about a job, he's deeply engaged. And on top of that, he's faithful. Back in the days of Eli and his appalling sons, God had pronounced this, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do what is according to my heart and mind. One day, I will raise up a priest who does what is in my heart and according to my mind. And now we've got that priest, a high priest who's got integrity and righteousness and who cares deeply for you a merciful and faithful high priest. It's hard not to hear echoes of Exodus 34 here where Yahweh is described like this, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. This may this may well be the point. The son is the high priest who is both human and divine, who is like us in every respect and who is like God in every respect, including being merciful and faithful. This is a great and precious statement, brothers and sisters. Jesus is our merciful and faithful high priest. Our merciful and faithful high priest gets it and he gets you he's on the job, he's with us, emotionally engaged, able to help, which is why the pastor leaves us with verse 18. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now the verb at the end there can just as easily be translated tested as tempted, and I think that's the point. There's no particular suggestion here in the book of Hebrews that these believers are sinning. They're just struggling to keep going. They're under pressure. They're flagging, but they're not rebelling. And at this point, the pastor isn't calling them with a big stick to repent. He's calling them to look to Jesus, their merciful and faithful high priest who really does get it who's been there, who's done that and himself kept going and to see that he really is able and willing to help. I'm almost done. I'm almost done. I just want to say as we close, I'm not sure that we put enough emphasis on the real-time help that Jesus offers us. I think in our particular circles, There are times when our focus on the importance of the message about Jesus Christ, the gospel, can actually downplay the presence and actions of Christ in us and for us. We need to keep reminding ourselves and reminding one another, the gospel is what leads us to the person of Jesus, to the one to whom we're united by the spirit. You see, this truth that we read and teach and believe and are gripped by ultimately brings us to know and delight and lean on a person. A person who is with us, a person who is for us, and a person who is in us and is ready, poised, moment to moment to moment to moment to help us when we're struggling, when we're in pain, when we're confused, when we're doubting, when we're depressed, when we're anxious, when we let other people down, when we hurt others, when others hurt us, when we're gutted at our own sinfulness, when we're thinking about just throwing it all in. He's there, poised and ready to help us. So this week, actually this month, no actually, for the rest of your lives. Let's be aware that the eternal Son made human, Jesus Christ, is with us every step of the way. And that he's actually poised in the power of the Spirit when we come under pressure, whatever that pressure might be. He's poised. He's there. Ready and willing to help. And he's holding us by our hand leading us every step of the way to see God and enjoy him forever. This is an immensely rich passage. Keep going. Keep going. In the words of Hebrews 3.1, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Should we pray together? Let's pray. Loving Father, we ask this morning that in our weakness, sinfulness, weariness, and brokenness, would you help us to grasp and to taste and see even just a little more of the wonder of the fact that the eternal Son of God became human endured suffering and death and ascended to your right hand to bring us home father help us not just to marvel at that but to today this moment this week and for the rest of our days draw comfort from it as we seek to press on together and we pray this in jesus name amen